0: Why don't we go ahead and uh, open in a word of prayer. Lord, we're so thankful for this time together. Thank you for our church, and we're just uh, grateful to you, Lord, for uh, being able to assemble in a local body that uh, preaches the word of God, Lord. And we're so grateful for that. We don't want to take that for granted ever. We know that, uh, especially I think of brothers and sisters that might live in uh, more sparsely populated areas or different countries where they don't uh, have that privilege even, uh, and I just really, uh, again, want to just be mindful to thank you for all of the blessings you lavish upon us, um, in particular here in this country. Lord, we do pray, uh, we're thankful to you for the ability to assemble freely and publicly, and I pray that you would allow us to continue doing that, if that's in your will, Lord, uh, and know that there is uh, much uh, talk about politics, and uh, even uh, even as we move in this political phase, some people are claiming into a almost a post-Christian phase in this country. I've heard that uh, tossed around, Lord. We know that you nevertheless remain on your throne and uh, you protect and preserve your people throughout the ages. And we're so grateful to you for that, Lord. Father, as we talk about this today, this topic, this at times controversial topic, I pray that every word I speak would be in accordance with your word and its principles and that the people would be teachable to your word. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've been asked to speak on the topic of discernment in an age of identity politics. Now, as with any topical study, I want to give you just a few uh, disclaimers, if you will. There's there just this this topic is such a large topic, and there are so many scriptures that one could choose to address here on this topic. And so uh, I'm not claiming to be uh, conducting a comprehensive uh, study of this. Uh, In in actuality, I'm I'm selecting some specific areas, as with any topical study, and uh, bringing them to you to highlight, and I pray that it will be of benefit to you. But just to let you know, uh, again, I'm not claiming that this is going to be the last or the final or the complete word on this subject. Uh, But in any event, it is a joy for me to bring these matters to you, and I'm hoping to save some time at the end for Q&A. So we'll go ahead and uh, plan on that. I was actually very excited uh, when they asked me to talk about this, and that's because discernment appears to be increasingly lacking in the larger conservative evangelical landscape around us. Meanwhile, identity politics are just plain increasing everywhere in this society. And when we're surrounded by worldly concepts like identity politics, it's that much more important to use biblical discernment so that we can sift out the bad, and if there's anything left keep the good. First, let's talk about discernment. We use that word quite a bit around here, so let's go ahead and define it. I appreciated Pastor John MacArthur's explanation the most in uh, one of his writings. In its simplest definition, discernment is nothing more than the ability to decide between truth and error, right and wrong. Discernment is the process of making careful distinctions in our thinking about truth. In other words, the ability to think with discernment is synonymous with an ability to think biblically. 1 Thessalonians 5:21 and 22 teaches that it is the responsibility of every Christian to be discerning. But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good and abstain from every form of evil. The Apostle John issues a similar warning when he says, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. That's 1 John 4.1. So according to the New Testament, discernment is not optional for the believer. It is required. So that's discernment. What about identity politics? What's that? Again, I think it's important to define our terms, so let's do that here. Now, this phrase, identity politics, has been around for 50 years or more, and so there have been various different meanings associated with it. In today's context, however, I think this description from Oxford Bibliographies hits closest to the mark. Identity politics, also commonly referred to as the politics of identity or identity-based politics, is a phrase that is widely used in the social sciences and humanities to describe the deployment of the category of identity as a tool to frame political claims, promote political ideologies, or stimulate and orientate social and political action, usually in a larger context of inequality or injustice, and with the aim of asserting group distinctiveness and belonging and gaining power and recognition. And if you were in the Q&A just now, you heard Pastor John talk about that very thing, how these kind of identity groups, it's about obtaining power. And I think that is a common theme. And really, that's uh, the use of the political process uh, throughout history has been uh, used in that same pursuit, the pursuit of power in some way. So when we're talking about discernment in an age of identity politics, we're talking about what a biblical worldview looks like in the midst of all of these identity groups trying to compete for attention and support, often in the name of rectifying supposed injustice, and the way to do that for these identity groups is to gain power and recognition. So in a way, you know, as I just talked about, this topic this morning goes back to not only what Pastor John was just talking about in the Q&A, but also in the series that he did last fall, this notion of social justice. And so really, if you want a fuller discussion of that, I recommend his incredible four-part sermon series on social justice and the gospel, starting on August 26, 2018. And it's really a tremendous, uh, tremendous exposition of Ezekiel chapter 18, and uh, it was just really incredibly helpful when we're thinking about this topic of social justice and identity politics. I've also taught on this topic, and there's a message from Sundays in July 2017 entitled Skin Deep, and that's on Sundays in July from 2017. And there was also a panel discussion from the last Sundays in July in 2018 with myself and Carl Hargrove and Mike Riccardi, and that was uh, entitled The Race Set Before Us. So those are some additional resources if you want kind of a more in-depth treatment on some of these issues. But this morning, we're talking about identity politics, and the fundamental question in that regard for Christians is, what is our identity? Well, it's a great question, and happily, Scripture gives us the answer, and it's a very simple one. Our identity is in Christ, right? Amen. That's right. And and it's just, our identity is in Christ, that is our first, and our foremost, and our primary, and our increasing identity. Again, that's a simple and straightforward claim, but as always, I don't want you to just take my word for it. I want to prove my point to you from Scripture. So let's read a number of verses together. Let's turn, actually, in your Bibles to Romans 10, verses 12 and 13. You've also got it up here on the screen. But, you know, just, uh, it's just, these, there's a series of powerful verses, and they're so helpful, and I think they're so clear, but we'll read them together, and they'll keep on flipping forward through the New Testament For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is the Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. This passage is clear, Jew or Greek doesn't matter. That Jewish identity, that Greek identity, it's not important. What matters is that Christ is our Lord, we are unified in him, and he is our Savior. 1 Corinthians 12.13 For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Repeated there. So again, we see this concept of unity in Christ, that we, we are one spirit. That's emphasized in this one verse. We are baptized into one body, no matter what our ethnicity is, no matter what our social class is, slave or free. Jews and Greeks, again, drink of the exact same Holy Spirit. And the clear and obvious message from this verse is that ethnicity, class, these other kind of surface distinctions simply are not important compared to our unity in the Spirit. Let's look at another verse. This is one of my favorite verses because it's so clear in terms of how we ought to act toward one another. 2 Corinthians 5 16 and 17. Therefore, From now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. We are to regard no one according to the flesh. And that means exactly what it sounds like. We must not allow superficial external factors such as ethnicity, beauty, clothing, style, social class, to affect how we view and treat one another. Again, crystal clear, I would, I would submit to you. Let's look at Galatians three twenty-eight and 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs, according to promise. I want you to just pause for a moment and think about how radical that statement is, especially coming from a Hebrew among Hebrews like Paul. Whether you're Jew or Greek, again, we see this for the third time in these passages, Uh, just if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's offspring. You are spiritual heirs to God's promises, even to Abraham. Now, Again, for a Jew in that day and age to say that Greek Gentiles could be Abraham's offspring, that that is simply unthinkable for like a Jew to take that attitude. And yet that is clearly what Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is saying right here. And Paul again, he was he was the chiefest among, he was like the Jewish cheerleader, right? I mean, he was he was the Jew among Jews. He was the the Hebrew among Hebrews. And yet Paul says here, we are all one in Christ Jesus, who tears down every single superficial barrier, every single ethnic barrier. Christians are one, they are united. Let's look at Colossians 3, verses 9 through 11. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. So once again, we see the same theme repeated again and again and again in Scripture, that there there is no more Greek or Jew, that that's just not important anymore. There is no more circumcised or uncircumcised, or in other words, no more viewing as clean or unclean among the ethnic groups. No more barbarian or Scythian, in other words, no more viewing as uncivilized brutes and outsiders. For those in Christ, there is only Christ who is all and in all. So we can see from the perfect scripture what truly matters and where our emphasis should be. It should be on Christ, on our unity as Christians and not on things such as ethnicity or other surface characteristics. Lastly, for this moment, for this portion, I'm going to go to 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have Received mercy. It's such a powerful, clear statement. And, and by the way, all of these words—a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation—those are all in the Greek. Those are all singular terms. It's not a dozen races or a dozen priesthoods or a dozen nations. When you are a Christian, you are one race. It doesn't matter what we look like. We are one people, and we're bound together with the foundation of Jesus Christ as our chief cornerstone by which everything else is measured. Now, the theme of these verses could not be more clear. We are unified in Christ. That is is true right now. That is a present reality. In the present, we are one race. And all of these other temporal distinctions, surface distinctions, all of these other temporary matters, they're, they're, they're unimportant. And, in fact, when you compare them to our unity in Christ, they're not even really distinctions at all. This theme is further amplified when we look elsewhere in Scripture. Consider John 3.30, it's John the Baptist, and when he aptly states, he must increase, but I must decrease. Every single other group identity pales in comparison to our Christian identity and our unity in Christ is a reality and a command that must overwhelm any other tendency that we might have toward tribalism or factionalism think about it luke told us plain uh, jesus told us plainly in luke 14:26 if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters yes and even his own life he cannot be my disciple Our Christian calling could require us to leave behind even immediate family. So how much more so must we leave behind ties of far less importance, such as ethnicity or class or tribe or even political party? And the reason for this is because Christ is Lord over all. Hebrews 2.8 could not be more clear. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him all things are in subjection to jesus christ even though even if we look around this world sometimes and see craziness happening but nevertheless all creation is in subjection to him and at one day every knee will bow amen so all things are in subjection to jesus christ and for the christian that all things would include again, any other aspect of our identity that would try to compete with our identity in Jesus Christ. Now, we see all of these truths in Scripture. They're brought out in a couple of very clear descriptive examples, and we see that in Acts chapter 6 and Galatians chapter 2. And ironically, those are two passages most often cited by certain Christian social justice identity politicians, I'll just say, to try to support their positions. But as we'll see, it doesn't support their positions at all. In Acts 6, which I will commend to your attention and would urge you to read it later, we saw a conflict in Jerusalem where the native ethnic majority Hebraic Jews were neglecting the distribution of charity to the widows of the ethnic minority Hellenistic Jews. Meanwhile, in Galatians 2, we saw a conflict in Galatia, which is near what we now know as central Turkey, where the ethnic minority Jews were arrogantly keeping themselves separate from the native ethnic majority Gentiles. Many of whom were actually from a Celtic background, interestingly, in that area. Now, in both of these conflicts, in Acts 6 and Galatians 2, we see the clear call to crush down the importance of our ethnic culture and to elevate our unity in Christ, which is what truly matters. This reality is true regardless of whether it's a majority group or a minority group that is acting wrongly. So when you occasionally see aggressive calls for minority groups to separate themselves by ethnicity or whatever into their own churches, into their own kind of tightly knit uh, exclusive subgroups, it's the same thing that we saw in Galatians too, And it's unbiblical and it's sinful and it's wrong. And to be crystal clear... It was unbiblical and sinful and wrong in centuries and decades past as well when majority groups engaged in segregation. But the reality as we look at it today, we don't really necessarily see that overt majority group segregation anymore in the United States. And if you do, please let me know and I'd be eager to call that out clearly and boldly. After the civil rights laws in the, in the 60s, a lot of that de jure segregation, the legal segregation was eliminated by law. And and praise the Lord for that, because that was an unbiblical and elitist attitude. Regardless of the situation, whether it's the majority group or the minority group that's in the wrong, the answer is the same in Galatians 2 and Acts 6. Repent and cut it out. Stop it. And by the way, as an aside, and this is just an aside because it's a common discussion today in the identity politics arena, Nowhere in either Acts 6 or Galatians 2 is there any evidence of reparations being made after the fact. The solutions were simply to be diligent in ensuring a fair distribution of charity and to sit together in unity. If you're interested in learning more about reparations, I can recommend an excellent podcast to you from just a few weeks ago, the Just Thinking podcast podcast. On March 20th, 2019, with Daryl Harrison, who actually he he now attends our church, by the way, since the beginning of the year, he's a dear friend, and actually he's one of the smartest and most biblical men that I know. But uh, he he talks about a number of proj, uh, pro, um, a number of uh, you know issues from week to week uh, on his podcast with uh, a man named Virgil Walker, and it's uh, really excellent. So this is our first concept that our identity is in Christ and that is what truly matters. But I'm going to move to another kind of common objection we see on this identity politics arena. Okay, but what about, what about the different ethnic groups that we see in heaven? Well, Hopefully, again, I've just established prayerfully that we're united in Christ and that all other surface distinctions are of far lesser importance, even of no distinction compared to our unity in Christ. That's the clarity and the power of Scripture that we just went through. But again, you will hear this common objection from certain Christian social justice identity politicians that, oh, well, look, uh, the gospel calls us to go out to the outermost ends of the earth, and, and and by the way, ethnic groups and identity groups, identity groups have to be important. In fact, they're so important that we're still going to have ethnicity in heaven. So that's the argument that they raise, and it's extremely common, that argument. Well, the response to that is simple. I certainly agree That the gospel is to go out to the uttermost ends of the earth. Amen? And by the way, so does our whole church. Because as Pastor Michael Mahoney has said on numerous occasions, you cut us and we bleed missions here at Grace Church. Missions are our life blood. But again, the very simple fact that ethnic groups exist today and that we want them to have the gospel That does nothing to overturn the basic fact from the word of God that we are still united in Christ, as we just went over at length. And in fact, it's precisely because we are united in Christ that we want to bring the gospel to our brothers and sisters across the world without any discrimination or partiality whatsoever, right? And remember, we regard no one according to the flesh. We read that verse together. If we did regard people according to the flesh, if we cared only about people who look like us, and by the way, as Pastor John says, us is incredibly different and diverse in itself, and praise the Lord for that at this church. We have such a diversity of peoples. But if we only cared about ourselves, what would we be doing? We certainly wouldn't be prioritizing world- worldwide missions like we do, if that was our desire to be, to, to be kind of clannish and insular and uh, prejudiced. In that way, we certainly wouldn't have so many different language outreaches on this very campus, Spanish ministry, Arabic, Filipino, Italian, Korean, Russian, Thai outreach, you name it. We've got an outreach. And if you speak another language fluently and you want to bring the gospel in that language, come talk to me afterwards. And I'd be glad to connect you with our local outreach department. But I do want to spend a little bit more time on this ethnic groups in heaven concept, because like I said, when we're talking about the topic of identity politics, especially in the church, it's such a common point that people try to argue and try to raise. And the argument typically goes something like this. We need to celebrate and emphasize and focus on the importance of ethnic diversity here on earth, because God is a creative God and the body of Christ has many parts. And when you look at a picture of heaven in Revelation 7 verse 9, you see people from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. So obviously, if that ethnicity persists even in heaven, it must be important. So why aren't we acknowledging how important it is on earth too? Well, I'm going to tell you plainly, there are several problems with that interpretation. First, yes, I agree, God is certainly a creative God. But it goes beyond what scripture says to assume that simply because God is creative and created different ethnicities that that somehow means we ought to focus and elevate the importance of ethnicity. That's not true any more than we ought to focus and emphasize and elevate the importance of the color of our eyes or the color of our hair. Because after all, God is a creative God, and he gave many different types of hair color and eye color as well, did he not? Again, as we've seen clearly, Scripture does have plenty to say about how we ought to think about things like ethnicity, things like physical appearance, things like class, And again, the Bible does not seek to emphasize or elevate their importance. Quite the contrary. In comparison to our unity in Christ, all of those distinctions are crushed down. Second, when you see the term body of Christ in Scripture, it generally means the entire group of believers everywhere. And when we talk about the diversity of the body of Christ, or the body of Christ having many parts, if you take a look at the key passages on that concept, such as you can write these down if you want. 1 Corinthians 12:12 12, 12 and following, Romans 12:4 and following, Ephesians 4:11 and following. You'll see that the focus in those passages is on different function and giftedness, and not on ethnicity or physical appearance. And third, yes, ethnicity does persist even in heaven. That's true because it's, it does indeed exist here and our glorified bodies are still going to be like us, except far better and without any sin. Praise the Lord for that. But let's take a close look at Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This passage, and the other ones like it in the book of Revelation, these are all descriptive passages. They simply state matter-of-factly that heaven will have people from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. And that mere description alone does not equal some kind of ethnocentric mandate where we are to focus on that. Any more than descriptions of polygamy in the Old Testament equal an approval of multiple wives. Indeed, when we look at Revelation, verses 7, 9, and 10, we actually see that the focus of that passage is clearly on worship of the Lamb. That the Bible is a Christocentric book. It's not, it's not about focusing on mankind. And you see it clearly in that passage that those verses are about worship of the Lamb. It's, it's not focusing on or dwelling on the ethnic makeup of the worshipers. In fact, upon closer examination, the most noteworthy aspect of the worshipers is not that they're different in ethnicity, it's that they're so astonishingly unified. Even uniform, you could say, in many ways, because they're all standing in the same position before the throne. They're all wearing the same white robes, they're all waving the same palm branches. And they're all saying the exact same thing, all in unison. So these descriptive passages are hardly a justification for elevating the importance of ethnicity. In fact, they speak far more to the elevation of our unity in Christ, just like we talked about in the last point with all of those scriptures. The fact that the worshipers are of different ethnicities is really more like a matter-of-fact side comment. And it's nowhere near enough scriptural support to base an entire philosophy of ministry upon, or even worse, an entire theological framework like some people try to do. And that's especially true in light of the fact that, again, we just went over that laundry list of clear prescriptive commands as opposed to descriptive examples that we saw earlier, uh, that we talked about earlier. I would add that just working it out practically, when we talk about identity politics as a practical matter both today and throughout history, there's a great danger of emphasizing and focusing upon ethnicity or really upon any group identity outside of Christ. And historically, we've in fact seen horrific results from that. I mean, there's genocide Obviously we know all about the Nazi genocide of the Jewish people, but also coming up later this month, by the way, we have the 104th anniversary of the start of the Armenian genocide, where Islamic Turks murdered one and a half million Christian Armenians. There's also the awful sin of ethnicity-based chattel slavery originating from man-stealing. We all know about that dark chapter in the history of our nation and many other nations. There's a dehumanizing impact of segregation. These are all horrible, horrible sins that result from an ethnicity-focused, ethnicity-elevating, or again, any identity-group-elevating type of focus. And of course, there are still wrongs and injustices today, certainly not perhaps to the magnitude of the other atrocities that I've described. But even if they are different in degree... Again, they are similar in kind. Whenever we start to drift toward this identity group-based emphasis, I think Pastor Todd Pruitt of the Presbyterian Church in America put it extremely well. If we find ourselves building on the same presuppositions as either white—I'm presupp- sorry—if we find ourselves building on the same presuppositions as either white supremacy or black liberation theology, then we can safely conclude we're heading in the wrong direction. I mean recently there was a conference for women that had like 1,500 women at it in Texas a couple of weeks ago, and there was a speaker up there. um, She happened to be – she she terms herself as a, I think a uh, Nigerian-American anti-racist – public theologian or something like that, and th- this this woman uh, basically uh, went on and on about how whiteness is wicked, and and really kept on kind of going over that, and she was arguing about this concept of whiteness from a sociological perspective, but I'm sure the great majority of the people in that room understood whiteness as the common definition, you know, that uh, you know, would connote a skin color, and so there was some controversy about that, but that's an example of how even in the church today... We have people that are focusing and trying to focus on and elevate this kind of ethnic identity when, again, that's not important compared to our unity in Christ. So, how then, in light of these reality that we are unified in Christ, and you know, again, this common objection that I've hopefully addressed about, uh, you know, just because there are ethnic groups in heaven, that doesn't mean that we're called to elevate their importance here. How do we navigate identity politics? How do we do that? Well, again, on this topic of political engagement or activism generally, uh, you know, I mentioned that skin-deep message from Sundays in July of 2017. Uh, the entire second half of that message deals with kind of some concrete uh, how-to's and how-not-to-do's in the area of this uh, type of activism. Um, that message might i think some hopefully good and good concepts and principles in terms of whether or not to get involved or how or how not to get involved you heard pastor john talk about it in the q and a a little bit just recently but specifically as it pertains to identity politics in the event that you do decide to engage or even be active in political matters i think there's a helpful scriptural principle to remember and it's related to our identity and unity in christ which i've already emphasized so strongly And that scriptural principle is found in Galatians 6.10. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. If we cherish our unity in Christ, if that's the most important identity that we have, we need to remember that we are indeed called to love our neighbor as ourselves. That is certainly true. We are indeed called to do good to all people. That is certainly true. Commanded in Galatians 6.10, to especially do good to those who are of the household of faith. In other words, to other Christians. And of course, this makes sense because it's perfectly in keeping with John 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. I think there's a common misconception among many Christians that we ought to treat unbelievers better than we treat our brothers and sisters for the sake of evangelism, for the sake of our Christian witness. But that is precisely wrong in its priorities. We are to love unbelievers, yes, but the love we show our fellow Christians should be so lavish that it stands out as a testimony to those same unbelievers. Those unbelievers should yearn to be part of our own Christian community. We see the same lesson in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 27 and 28. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you, and for conscience' sake. This passage, Pastor John says this, You're better off to offend the non-Christian. You have a far greater obligation to your brother. This is the family, folks. This is the kingdom. Far better to offend that unbeliever. And you know what that unbeliever will conclude? Those Christians love each other. Those Christians care for each other. If you offend your brother and you don't offend the unbeliever, the unbeliever will conclude it is better to be an unbeliever. They treat you better. Don't offend a believer. So back off of that desire to reach out to that unbeliever for the sake of love to that brother and to make sure he doesn't stumble. Why? Because God, listen to this, is far more concerned about his own than those who aren't his own. They are his beloved sheep and the reaching of those who aren't his own is upon the virtue and the godliness and the character of those who are. That's Pastor John speaking about this very passage. So if if you decide that you want to get involved in politics or identity politics in some way, it's okay to be aware of our most important identity in Christ and to look out for your fellow brothers and sisters. So for example, working to preserve Religious liberty and freedom of speech and expression so that we're allowed freely as we can today and and to worship freely and and to be able to proclaim the gospel. I mean, you've got stories coming out of uh, the United Kingdom, which is not too far ahead of us in terms of this uh, identity politics stuff where people are street preaching or they're even sharing the gospel with someone and and those people are getting arrested at times. There, There are a number of cases working their way through the system. And that's the proclamation of the gospel Now, I would like to think and hope and pray and believe happen here with certain constitutional guarantees that we have, but, you know, again, who can say? The Lord knows. So that would be some things you might consider as a possibility. There's nothing wrong with standing up for biblical values so that other Christians won't lose their livelihoods or even go to jail if they don't bend the knee to the latest popular secular opinion put forward by some leftist identity group. Now, as you move out beyond that, that notion of of caring for our brothers and sisters and especially to do good to the household of faith, as you move beyond that identity group kind of level, you have to be a lot more careful. Now, I don't think there's anything necessarily sinful or fundamentally wrong with using your Christian liberty to align with certain other identity groups potentially, but you need to examine carefully whether both the means and the end are in accord with biblical principles. It's the same reason you can't just go lie, cheat, steal, and make millions and then think it's okay if you donate half of that to the church. You've got to be aware of both the means and the end. Now, my uh, profession is, uh, is as a lawyer. I do uh, corporate law, transactional law. So maybe it would be okay for me to line up with a lawyer's group that seeks to protect profession. Maybe that would be all right. But if they do that by suing everyone in sight for trivial matters and being pugnacious and quarrelsome to everybody, I personally might be hesitant to endorse those means. Or in in contrast, if one of the main goals, one of the main ends of this lawyers group was to promote an anti-Christian agenda, I'd definitely be uncomfortable endorsing that end. Let's take another example. In my own personal view, I think the fight for the lives of the unborn is the most important fight that we have today in our country, because it's literally a matter of life and death. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9 states, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all the unfortunate. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the afflicted and needy. Who is more mute than an unborn baby, I ask you? More unfortunate than an unwanted child? Who is more afflicted, needy, helpless than a precious one, still naked in the womb? But even on that, what I again, in my view, in my opinion, very important fight, you still need to consider the means and the end. Are they biblical? Now, a group's end goal of halting abortion might very well be righteous, and I would I would support that goal. But perhaps the means that they seek to use might include violence or even civil disobedience in some ways, and and those things would be sinful and unacceptable uh, for Christians. And, And of course there's the reality that in today's political environment, the thing you have to be especially careful about, the significant majority of identity groups and identity politics in general today are based on overtly leftist and secular ideals. If we go back to our definition of identity politics, you can't really support an identity group's quest for power in order to rectify injustice when the group itself stands against biblical morals and ethics. And in a way, That's very different from or even opposed to the Bible. Now, you might notice that some of the things that I'm talking about here that I'm mentioning might tend to line up with what some would call a typical conservative evangelical political outlook. And actually, it's become very stylish these days to condemn that sort of thing, especially if you're a, a Southern Baptist whose powerful Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission is run by a former staffer for a Democrat congressman, by the way. But I'll tell you, speaking of someone who used to be a radical liberal Democrat before God saved me, and speaking of someone who's not a registered Republican today, I'm not a party man or anything like that. For me, it's all about the issues And I'll tell you, if the Democrats start fielding candidates that are strong for biblical values or religious freedom or halting the murder of the unborn, I promise that I would would probably give that person a serious look in some some level. Now, I won't hold my breath. (laughs) But until that happens, however, speaking for myself personally, I'm usually kind of stuck with at most one option that my own conscience, I'm not presuming to speak for yours but my own conscience would allow me to support. And that one option has not been the Democrats in any recent election that I can recall. Now, with all that you heard, Pastor John, you know, there is a tendency to put far too much confidence and trust in politics when the reality is that only our God is sovereign. You know, you, you don't have to turn on the Fox News or the CNN or whatever it is and get all riled up by these matters. We have to trust that our God is sovereign, and each mere vote that we might cast is rarely ever going to make the difference, especially here in liberal California, right? Corinthians, Corinthians 10 verses 3 and 4, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses and psalm 27 i think is especially apt some boast in chariots and some in horses but we will boast in the name of the lord our god and that's what we have to remember is that all of this notion of identity politics and you know all of the tumult and the and the the storm going on around us we do need to trust that our god is sovereign our god is on the throne and the nations may rage and people may throw things at at, at us, even as as the church, but we have to trust in god 's sovereignty at the end of the day why don 't we pray and then i 'll take some questions, Lord, thank you for this opportunity to talk a little bit about uh, identity politics and uh, just some counsel to men as they process through this and process through uh, other things we 've heard this morning and just uh, Lord, I pray you would bless these men richly, uh, just allow them to uh, lead their families to Uh, If they're single, to find their wives, to to just bless them with children. Uh, Just allow them to be a bold leader, even as Pastor John was mentioning in the Q&A. Equip them, Lord. Strengthen them. Just let your Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit reside within them richly. And uh, Lord, uh, we just thank you. I pray that during the Q&A time, it would just be a time of edification and benefit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, just for Q&As, I've got a few general um, kind of requests. Uh, first, um, try to keep your questions brief. Uh, try to make your questions actually a question. Uh, that's uh, something that I've asked in the past. Um, if it's really, really detailed and specific, I'm going to be around afterwards. I'm happy to talk to you about that uh, you know, afterwards privately. Uh, but you know, the goal would be to try to have questions that might be of benefit to the group. Uh, and with that, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll repeat your questions for the benefit of any recording, and you can just raise your hands, and we'll start. Yes, sir. Uh, yes, I, I know we were joking about shut off Fox News for peace and all, but is there not a balance for Christians to be informed? Um, what what is that? No, that's a great question. So the question is, uh, even though, you know, Pastor John mentioned shutting off Fox News, is there a balance still for Christians to be informed? Yeah, I would say absolutely. And uh, we have been given in this country a stewardship, uh, which is the ability to vote, the ability to um, kind of uh, advocate for uh, certain causes that might care about deeply. And uh, I think in those matters, we are, it, it does uh, benefit us to be informed on the issues. Um, you know, I certainly think uh, saying it was really... Um, you know just we really need to know our bibles you know because as we lead our families we want to be able to be in a position where you know it it, it doesn't do us any good we, we might spend a ton of energy being informed about the issues on a specific matter but if the side we land on is an unbiblical side we got real problems right all the time spent learning about that kind of factual matters and on the on the issue the political issue is a waste if we, if we land on the wrong side that the Bible would not call us to. So I think we got to keep things in priority. Um, it really grieves me when I think about, um, just so many people in, even in the Christian church are talking about these kind of left-wing sociological critical race theory concepts. And, you know, these are worldly concepts and, and again, it's just, uh, I don't see if we really believe that the Bible is sufficient, that su- the Scripture is sufficient for every to equip man for every good work. That uh, this is what we need. I think a lot of and you've got a lot. You've got that woman I mentioned, that uh, public theologian. She had this laundry list of of books that she suggested people read that were all these secular, sociological, kind of uh, angry, critical uh, looks at uh, kind of the situation in the country today. And you know, I would submit that given the woeful state of biblical literacy in most professing Christians, that time would be far better spent on reading the Bible, or a systematic theology, or maybe even biographies of some of our heroes and heroines of the faith from the past, you know, but to your point, you know, again, I think there is absolutely some call to be informed on the issues uh, but even then you can you, you know depending you, you can take it too far i think you have to be cautious uh, about how we invest our time in any matter but absolutely it's not that doesn't mean we have to be ignorant about it yes uh, could you put on the board i come up that podcast I was so glad I could write it down. yeah I, uh, I didn't have it on the board uh, the podcast again the man Daryl harrison d a r r e l l harrison uh spelled like it usually is and the podcast is the just thinking podcast and uh he has a daryl daryl d-a-r-r-e-l-l daryl harrison um the just thinking podcast and his he's got a partner on there uh, virgil walker but daryl harrison i think is the one that is no daryl daryl yeah oh yeah yeah so that's the podcast that i recommended earlier yes in the back So the question is, uh, do you have any advice in terms of loving the brethren, loving the body of coming alongside a brother who's really deeply invested in this kind of uh, politics kind of thing? Yeah, you know, I think that just one thing I've noted, and it's been interesting to me, uh, and this is obviously a biased point of view coming from the perspective that I'm coming from, but I've noticed that a lot of people that are big Christian pro-social justice folks, um, you know, I, I love talking about the Bible, right? And I love sitting down and talking with people about the Bible, and and even I'll engage occasionally, and I strive to be as gracious as I possibly can, which is probably still not gracious enough. But I, you know, like even I'll engage in some discussions uh, online, uh, social media, from time to time, and and I, just my impression is the people that would align more with Pastor John's point of view, the point of view, and I would certainly include myself in that group as well. You know, we're eager to talk about the Bible and how the Bible is. Brought to bear upon these issues, but a lot of times there's not a lot I have not perceived a lot of return interest uh, you know it's you need to agree with us, and if you just then you 're not my worth my time to talk about it, let, let me go talk to all these other people and uh, you know it's kind of like it's, they're, they're assuming they're begging the question is what they 're doing they're assuming the righteousness of their own position and you know rather than kind of explicitly expositing the text to support it, and so they're kind of they're, they're, they're at step two when they really need to be spending more time at step one. And they're doing just what I spoke about in the other kind of situation where, look, you can educate yourself a lot on a specific political issue, but if you land on the wrong side of the issue because you don't have the biblical position, then that's a problem. And oftentimes, and again, you know, obviously people would disagree uh, on that side with what I'm saying, but you know, I, I really have noticed that there does not seem to be a strong scriptural engagement on the part of a lot of these folks that want to do the social justice kind of thing in the church. And uh, it's usually just a couple of verses that they try to expand way beyond their context or way beyond. It's like, look, love your neighbor. Well, of course, we we are indeed to love our neighbor, but love your neighbor does not tell us the time, place, and manner of how we are to love our neighbor, right? That's something we pursue in our Christian liberty and in our stewardship. Love your neighbor does not mean I am forced to make public proclamations that support your identity group right that it's just it's the ludicrous nature of how far they try to stretch the biblical application of some very basic and general text that we would all agree with you know of course we all want to love our neighbor so i would say just look patiently kindly lovingly bring the scriptures to bear it's like look how do you reconcile all of these calls to unity in Christ and the elevation of Christ and the crushing down of our surface distinctions. How how do you reconcile that if you really believe that the Bible is inerrant and sufficient? And, you know, if you really say that the Bible is the, the guide for your life. And increasingly I am seeing really notice trying to say, Oh, well, look, the Bible is great. And of course, well, but you also need to know all of this sociological stuff in order to speak on the issue. It's like, no, I do not. That is, I do not need worldly wisdom to speak matters of truth, right? Look, the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. And the people of God are going to look like fools to the academics that are out there. And it's like, look, they might look at us as backwoods yokels and bumpkins, right? But I don't care. You know, look, if the word of God is what we stand upon. And if you cannot justify or defend your position from the word of God, then your position is a losing position. And all of the sociological critical race theory, secular textbooks written by people that hate my God, that is chaff. That is that is worthless to me at the end of the day. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the key arguments from the other side is the question in terms of the identity politics, social justice side? Well, I did outline one of them. Uh, You know, again, a lot of them really uh, put a lot of weight on this, uh, you know, ethnicities in heaven concept from the book of Revelation, that descriptive, uh, you know, concept, which I went over at length in the message. Uh, Another one, again, is this notion of loving your neighbor, you know, and how, uh, you know, again, which we would all agree we should love our neighbor, but uh, the, the difference becomes you know we believe that there is liberty in the how time place and manner of how we do that and they would want to make it a much more specific constrained view and i would say that's you know in my view when you when you go down that road too far you really get into man-made legalism It's like, oh, in order to be a good Christian, you need to fight for, you know, the things that Black Lives Matter supports or whatever as one organization. You need to fight, you know, all these other identity groups and you need to support this and that. That's where I would say, look, the scriptures don't tell me I have to support that specific cause. And in fact, I think certain elements of that specific cause are anti-biblical so i will not be joining you in your support of this group or that group or whatever group just because i am to love my neighbor you know sometimes you know love rejoices in the truth right that's a definition of love and so one way you can love your neighbor is by telling them the, tr- the truth of the gospel and you know that love may cause your neighbor to hate you but just because your neighbor hates you doesn't mean that you've done anything wrong or offensive that's the thing that today it's all about being offended right well just because someone else is offended does not mean that i've sinned against that person it just it just means that that person might be especially sensitive or i'm not saying things that are socially acceptable anymore as this nation moves further and further away from its biblical uh, does that answer your question those are two primary arguments i would say that uh, are often brought out yes yes the like the First Corinthians uh, ten that you mentioned, somebody inviting you in, and all that. And part of what I seemed to hear this morning was, well, if if they're not accepting, you know, they're going to cause us to stumble or fall. Whatever the case may be, we don't associate. And I, it seemed to put me in conflict over, in a sense, you've got to protect yourself, but then how do we reach people? Because there is that divide. There is not, we don't have that shared understanding between us. So the question is on 1 Corinthians 28, when I gave the story about uh, eating food uh, set before idols and choosing, you know, do you offend the believer or the unbeliever, uh, that uh, there's some struggle with that because of how do you reach uh, an unbeliever in that type of situation. Yeah, and I think, again, first of all, you're not going to run into the situation every day. I raise this verse because it highlights clearly the principle that we are to love especially the household of faith, that we are to love our brother. If it it has to come down to a choice, that, again, the scriptures would have us choose our brother or our sister who Christ died for and not necessarily the unbeliever. And, uh, you know just because that relative priority is in place that we see in the scriptures that doesn't mean we can't reach out to that unbeliever and use every means that we can to love that unbeliever and you know maybe we go back to that unbeliever and we explain hey listen you know my brother was, uh, you know, really, uh, you know, it, it was a challenge for him to eat that. So uh, I want to explain to you and take the time to explain why it is, and maybe that would be a great gospel opportunity. You know, you can you can go back to the unbeliever another time and, and, you know, bring them a gift, or you can love them a different way. You know, it's really, again, this is where the beauty of human creativity comes into play. There are any any number of ways you can bring the gospel to bear on that situation and to care for and love that unbeliever. But the point in 1 Corinthians 10:27 and 28, from uh, what I read, the quote from Pastor John and, and the other supporting verses, is that it's a priority of loving the brethren over loving the world. Somebody said, don't go in. What's that? It's like here, it's saying, don't go in. Don't, you know, they invite you, don't go in. Or am I got the wrong one? No, I'm, I'm not sure, that's not the, per, you know, why don't we talk after the meeting, because I think this might get into a more of a nuanced transa- translation issue, but, uh, okay, no, but I do thank you for the question. Yes. Um, you mentioned that you don't, uh, you're not a registered Republican, and I think a lot of us are registered Republicans for the sake of um uh, and ethics from a Christian biblical worldview. However, though sometimes the means uh, in which they are done, uh, the conduct of some of our politicians has now become more and more unethical. Uh, would you recommend Christians? away from identifying as Republicans and maybe embrace more of a Christ, a uh, uh, Christian who votes values for the sake of uh, not alienating other people. Yeah, so that's a great question, and the, I made a comment that I'm not a registered Republican, but the question is that you know a number of us uh, are, and uh, should we try to shy away from that maybe for the sake of our witness? Uh, look, I'm I'm not going to um, look. This is going to be a matter of individual conscience in many ways. I think that there are people who support the Republican Party because they believe that there is a place within the Republican Party for Bible-believing Christians, right? And I can understand that point of view. Um, I think raging debate in 2016 as to whether Christians, Bible-believing Christians ought to support uh, the President of the United States currently, uh, Donald Trump. And uh, Look, there were a number of different ways. It's going to come down to um, there are a couple of different ethical grids, if you will, that I think Bible-believing Christians uh, could fairly engage, and uh, one is called the, um, you know, kind of the the purist or eth- um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting the names, but one is basically a consequentialist view, uh, a practical, pragmatic view of, of voting, and another view is a kind of ethical endorsement view of voting, and uh, I would urge each person to be satisfied in their own conscience. Uh, you know, there's a couple of great articles that I uh, one was a um, I think Kevin DeYoung is someone that took a more pragmatic view of voting. Um, he had a really good article on that topic. And a, a fellow named Dan Doriani is a, um, another theologian who had a different view. He, he adopted the endorsement view of voting. Uh, I think Wayne Grudem, he was another person that, uh, like Kevin DeYoung, took a more kind of pragmatic view of voting. Um, I think it would behoove you to the extent that you're Processing through this question of should I or shouldn't I maybe be a member or registered member of the Republican Party? Just uh, look. If you're curious about that, if that's something that is uh, uh, asking question, if you're asking questions about that, go up on those views. And at the end of the day, each man, this is this is a matter of liberty, Christian liberty, because the Bible doesn't clearly, you know, obviously there's no mention of political party membership in, uh, you know. Well, actually, I take it back. You know, we had the Bible talked about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and other kind of movements like that, but it's not quite the same uh, level of analogy to today, um, I would argue. But uh, you know, I think this is a matter where each person needs to satisfy themselves in their own conscience. And yeah, you are going to take some heat. Oh, I can't believe you're a Republican or whatever, and that's just such a horrible thing. And but you know, look, uh, I think that people that are inclined to take that view are also going to. Uh, not be happy with your other Bible-believing views, even if you were not a registered <laughs> Republican. So you just got to gotta process through this question. And again, it's a matter of, the reason I'm not coming down the other way too hard is because this is clearly a matter of Christian liberty. And I don't want to bind your conscience to what I think on a matter of Christian. So just because by saying that I was not a registered Republican, I'm not trying to claim that everybody else ought to do what I do. That's not at all what I'm saying. Maybe one last question, and then we'll go to lunch. Anyone have a burning question? Oh yeah, Brad. The the topic of reparations, you know, kind of comes into contact with the economics and kind of make the food there some kind of biblical precedent foundation for hey, you've got genocide and got the policy, slavery, the great societal sins have been kind of uh been marked by one group against another. Isn't there some Yeah. So the question is, isn't there some biblical basis for the concept of reparations or restitution in general? And yes, I totally agree with you, Brad, that with respect to the issue of restitution, uh, there is a biblical principle. But what you see, and this is the key distinction, is you see the actual wrongdoer, the actual victim restitution. And the problem is, as you move down the generations... At that point, again, as Pastor John very well laid out in his Ezekiel eighteen series uh, from last fall, uh, you know the, the 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 sons are not responsible for the sins of the fathers At, and, and the problem with the reparations argument, I would say is that they're trying to um, assign guilt and or uh, penalty to people who uh, look no one in this in this country has ever owned a slave, right no one in this country and an increasingly smaller number of people in this country. Were ever responsible for the evils of segregation, you know, and, and as we march on from the 60s, uh, that that number of people that were even responsible for supporting or instituting segregation are going to become fewer and fewer. And so, uh, by all means, I am a firm supporter of biblical restitution when there is an actual wrongdoer and an actual victim. That that victim, I think, is in many cases to obtain some kind of monetary restitution for certain types of crimes and sins. Um, however, the problem about the discussion of reparations in this country, I would argue, is you're attempting to assign penalty and guilt to those who are not responsible. And even this notion of uh, there's this notion of corporate guilt or, or corporate sin, and you know ultimately, you know you see all through the scriptures in the New Testament that Paul and other people say, and I don't get the sense that they were saying this self-righteously, but they were able to say, look, I have a clear, my conscience is clear, I have a clear conscience toward this group of people or on this issue or on this topic. And I think that should be our striving as Christians, to maintain a clear conscience in general, but also in particular to any individuals. And, you know, again, as I sit before you, uh, as I stand before you, I, I believe that I have a clear conscience in these matters relating to treatment of various groups that doesn't make you know it could be that the Lord would reveal something to me in the future or you know maybe that there's something I'm not seeing uh, but the Holy Spirit will reveal that to me in the Holy Spirit's timing I'm not currently convicted as I stand before you of that and so all of these calls to corporate guilt by some social justice advocates uh, really you know I, I just look there there. I wrote an article on the blog pyromaniacs uh, uh, owing nothing to anyone is the title of that blog article? Um, is the concept that in Romans 12 we are capable of owing nothing. That that should be a striving that we should owe nothing to anyone except love. And you know, look, um, you know, I, I, you know, as I look at my register of you know of, of debts that are being paid off, and I'm thankful for that. Uh, you know, I, I you know, I, I would desire that as a goal that I would owe nothing to anyone except love. And that love is a huge obligation, as I wrote in the article. But uh, at the same time. I'm not moved by people trying to point the finger at me that I've never met before saying, oh, you owe me thing. It's like, no, I don't even know you, bro. So I don't think I owe you anything except love. So if you, need, if you need some help, come talk to me and we'll talk to help. But I tend to prefer helping people that strive for humility rather than people pointing a finger in my face and demanding that I pay them something that I don't think I owe them. But thank you for that question. And again, I'll be here, uh, but I'll release you to lunch. I apologize for running a couple of minutes late. Thank you.